27 through 30. So continuing our series through Matthew here. Uh, for those of you that are using the Black House Bible, it'll be on page 810 in front of you. So, if you want to stand while I read God's Word, again, it is going to be Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Darren, if you want to come up, I'll pray for you. God, thank you for um, Darren and the time he spent in your word this week just looking at this and um, seeing what it is that you want us to hear out of this. Lord, it's a, a hard passage. It's one that um, has difficulties for us uh, and just an understanding. So we ask that you would be on Darren um, using his words to, to shed some light on this. Um, would you give us hearts to receive your word today? Uh, would you give us repentant hearts where we need to repent? that you would give us courage to, to take action where you call us to take action from this today, Lord. Um, we need you, we love you, and we just ask that you would be at work in us today through this passage. In your name, amen. Well, thank you, Ben, for the prayers. Thank you guys for praying for me. Um, you know, today is a heavy passage. It is, there's a lot I, I kind of want to say. Um, and, I, and I'm really trying to be careful with this passage. And so I trust that you've had your coffee, that you are ready, your mind is focused and engaged. Um, you know, out of all of the things going on in the world, um, we are gathered here on a Sunday talking about sexuality and lust. And there's this guy, this Jesus of Nazareth, who has something really, really interesting to say about sexuality and lust. And he does so in a context that is, in many ways, similar to our context. You see, the Jews during this time, they were under occupation from the Roman Empire, whose sexual ideologies were very, very opposed to that of the Jews. And so Jesus is preaching a sermon here in Matthew 5, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's about the kingdom of God and how his followers should live. And so this is, depending on who you are, uh, the most challenging, one of the most challenging, disregarded, or simply hated portions of Scripture. And so, the context of this passage. The Jews had received God's law, right? The Ten Commandments were, were, most of us are probably familiar with the Ten Commandments, which stated among many things the Seventh Commandment, which was to not commit adultery. And, and that's easy enough to follow, right? I mean, all you have to do is not have sex with somebody who's not your wife, right? Well, that's what the most popular religious teachers taught at that time. 
But Jesus takes things a step further. He says, look, I, I know you've heard people say it's a sin to commit adultery, but let's talk about your thoughts. Jesus sets the bar very, very high. And he says, look, if you're going to identify with me, then you can't just live a life of outward morality, but you must live a life of inward morality and transformation. If you follow me, you can't just keep the rules on the outside. You have to inwardly be a different kind of person. Jesus is calling us to what one author calls a holy sexuality. In today's culture, this seems impossible, but I'm here to tell you this morning that it really isn't. If God's grace has transformed and is changing you. My main point this morning is simple. By God's grace, you can have victory over lust and live a life of holy sexuality. But to do this, you need to know what lust is, why it's a problem, how the gospel empowers us to have and live out this holy sexuality. So, so what I want to do this morning, first I need to explain what lust is, right? I've said that. There's lots of misconceptions out there, so I, I need to start with the basics. Secondly, there are four big lies that we believe about lust that I need to expose and that God's word exposes. Thirdly, there are three ways we normalize lust. Fourthly, I want to offer two promises for lustful hearts. And then lastly, I want to offer one essential foundational sort of way to fight and overcome lust. So what lust is, four lies we believe about it, three ways we normalize it, Two promises for lustful hearts, and one essential way to fight lust. Firstly, what lust is. Look with me in verses 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus isn't redefining adultery as much as he is explaining what's at the root of adultery. And he says it's something called lust. Now, before you have a proper understanding of what lust is, you have to know what adultery is. And if you are going to understand what adultery is, you have to understand what marriage is. Um, Kevin, our, our lead pastor, he's probably going to explore this more next week, but let me just give you a short sort of working definition of what marriage is. Biblically, marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman involving physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy and union. Marriage and sexuality was, were established at the very beginning of human history by God. Its moral boundaries were explained and its legal consequences solidified when God gave his Ten Commandments. And God, throughout Scripture, reveals himself as a husband to his people, Israel. That's what gives marriage its weight and sacred quality. So adultery is breaking this marriage covenant. That's, that's simple enough to understand, I think. Now, of course, in the narrow and outward sense, adultery is simply having sex with someone you're not married with, you're not in covenant with. But Jesus says it's possible to commit a kind of adultery without committing physical adultery. He says it's possible to break the seventh commandment through something called lust. What does he mean? Well, Jesus notices the connection between the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery, and the tenth commandment, which is about coveting or being greedy for someone or something that's 
not yours. Jesus says before anyone ever commits physical adultery and cheats on their spouse, they first have to covet someone who belongs to someone else. So, our definition. If adultery in the narrow and outward sense is physically having sex with someone you're not in covenant with, then lust is selfishly using your mind and emotions to engage in covenant forms of intimacy with someone other than your spouse. I'll say that one more time. Lust is selfishly using your mind and emotions to engage in covenant forms of intimacy with someone other than your spouse. Now, I already told you, make sure you bring your coffee because you're going to need to think and stay with me here. This is a very technical definition, but the, the reason I do this is very, very important. Because it really helps us understand what lust is and what lust isn't. Firstly, this means that lust isn't finding someone beautiful or attractive. There's nothing covenantal about that. Nor is lust the same thing as finding in yourself sexual desires. God made us with sexual desires, which in and of themselves aren't bad. Nor is it lustful if you have a friend who's of the opposite sex and you just enjoy spending time with that person. Once again, there, there's nothing covenantal about that, right? This also means that temptation isn't the same as lust. Here, Pastor Kevin DeYoung on this issue. He says, debts and trespasses require forgiveness. Temptation needs deliverance. They are not the same. Just because you're struggling with temptation doesn't mean you're mired in sin. Spiritual progression in the human heart goes from desire to temptation to sin to death. We are told to flee temptation, not because we've already sinned, but because in the midst of temptation, we desperately feel like we want to. If being tempted was in itself a mark of wickedness, we could not confess that Jesus Christ in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It is possible to experience profound temptations to sin while still being blameless, while still being blameless from that sin. Think about David and Bathsheba. Assuming he was on the roof, minding his own business, it wasn't wrong for something to register in David's brain that the woman his eyes happened upon, again, assuming he just happened upon the sight, was attractive. The problem was when he sent and inquired about the woman. This is desire giving way to temptation on the way to sin and death. The progression is something like this. You and I, we have desires, okay? Then God allows for testing circumstances. Then the world, the flesh, and the devil attack and try to twist those desires. And then we either give in or resist. That's the progression. The reason I define lust like this um, is also, I think it's helpful also because it, it clarifies what lust truly is. Okay, so that was more negative. Now here's what lust is in the positive sense. So, for example, porn and masturbation. That's lustful because, number one, it's incredibly selfish. You don't even need a real person to be there. Um, it's literally watching people have sex and it's inviting you to mentally and even physically partake of an act that's at the core of the marriage covenant, namely sex. This means sexually fantasizing about someone is lustful. 
This means dating Christians. When you do physical acts that turn you on sexually, you're lusting. This means, ladies, when you use your mind to imagine what life would be like if you just married a more kinder, understanding husband. If you have kids with another man, that means you're lusting. Because you're using your mind to engage in covenant forms of intimacy with someone other than your spouse. And this means when you let your emotions run loose and truly confide in someone other than your spouse, as if they were your spouse, you're lusting. So, once again, if adultery in the narrow and the outward sense is physically having sex with someone you're not in covenant with, then lust is selfishly using your mind and emotions to engage in covenant forms of intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. To quote Kevin D. Young again, if it is a sin to break the seventh commandment, then our culture is literally shattering it and grinding it to pieces. This is what Jesus says about lust, and we are in trouble, brothers and sisters. But sadly, Jesus' words don't drive us towards his mercy because we lie to ourselves. We rationalize our behavior. There are four big lies about lust. Four lies we believe about lust. The first lie is this. Our sexuality is our core identity. That's the first lie. Our sexuality is our core identity. And this lie is really at the foundation of all sexual issues and sins we see in our world, and yes, even in our church. Because we believe our identity is rooted in our feelings and what we do. Therefore, to restrict what we can and can't do sexually is a threat to our very existence. If someone says it's wrong for a guy to marry another guy, there's only two genders, or that you shouldn't have sex before you're married, or it's wrong to do this and that with your body, you're threatening their very existence. You're oppressive. You're oppressive. Why? Here, former Syracuse University professor Rosaria Butterfield on this. She says, Sigmund Freud, psychologist, believed that all people are really bisexual because the secular worldview denies God as creator and redeemer of humanity, the central question that our secular world asks is this. Rosaria, how do you feel? What pleases you most? In the words of our culture, sexual orientation and gender identity are social constructs. The former describes who you want to go to bed with, and the latter describes who you want to go to bed at. You see, the questions a culture asks reveal a great deal about its reigning idols. The most important question is not how do I feel, but how can my sexuality glorify God? Biblical marriage, if God provides a spouse, or faithful, chaste singleness. Under the doctrine of scripture, I learned that my distorted sexual desires were indwelling sin, not a category of personhood. See, brothers and sisters, don't believe the lie that your identity is your sexual feelings and desires. God is calling you, is calling me, to a holy sexuality that flows from a holy and redeemed identity and union with Christ. The second lie we believe is that lust can't be wrong. It doesn't hurt anybody, right? It can't be wrong if it doesn't hurt anyone. This is the look but don't touch mentality, right? But that's exactly what the religious leaders that Jesus rebuked believed. 
Garth, the weight of God's law is so heavy that even our best and most clever moral teachings are crushed under it. It's not enough to be holy just outwardly. You have to be holy inwardly. And besides, everybody knows instinctively that lust hurts people. Right? It, it, it ruins marriages and relationships. It makes conversations awkward. It, it molds you in such a way that becoming a one-woman man is nearly impossible. And most importantly, it hurts and grieves the heart of God. The third lie we believe is that the reason we lust is because of other people. Now, in more conservative and religious circles, a lot of people would say, yes, lust is, is, is a really bad thing. You know, that's why we have to fight it. We have to be holy. Um, and, and that's why we need to get out of this world, right? Because, because it's other people. It's women. Or it's men. That's why we lust. In the past, this meant that if you were really holy, you would probably go off live in a monastery somewhere. Or, like the early church father, Origen, you would literally castrate yourself so you wouldn't lust. Nowadays, you know what people do? They move out into the middle of nowhere outside of Jefferson City, outside of Ashland. I mean, like, in the middle of nowhere. And they hate on city life. Or at worst, they join cults. Why? Because for a lot of people, the city is full of lust, vice, temptation, which it often is. But people's response isn't simply disliking the city. They, they hate the people there. Because they're the reason why they sin. And people join cults? Well, they join cults because in cults there's an inordinate amount of control from the top down imposed on people and their members. Everything from how you dress, how you look, how you talk, where you go. And they promise you that you can actually have final, once for all, victory over lust and sin. Doesn't that sound awesome? Yet, none of these approaches will work because, as Paul says in Colossians 2, man-made religion has no power in stopping the indulgences of the flesh because man-made religion can't change the fundamental desires of the heart, which is the root of our sin. Outward circumstances and people provide the occasion for sin, not cause you to sin. Does this mean we can act and say whatever we want without consequence? No, no, not at all. I'm going to say more on that later. But to say other people make you sin is like the cancer patient saying their MRI caused their cancer. The MRI just revealed the underlying sickness that was already there. The fourth lie we believe, and this is the most impressive lie, is that marriage will fix your lust problem. You know, people say, hey, look, man, I'm struggling with lust. Let's just get married. Right? This is the clever slide because there's actually a lot of truth in it. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And that if you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry. Or it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, doesn't this sound just like the idea that if you struggle with lust, just get married? Well, no, it's not that simple, because right before this chapter, Paul says unequivocally to everyone, flee sexual immorality and lust. 
So it's not that marriage fixes your lust problem as much as it provides a safe outlet for you to be sexually active. And this makes sense, right? I mean, imagine the guy or the girl who's looked at porn for 10 years straight and then says, man, I really have a problem. You know what's going to fix this? If I get married. Do you really think that on the wedding night they're gonna, you know, he's gonna have realistic expectations? Do you really think he's gonna do well when his when his body changes or his wife wife's body changes? Like, no, it just doesn't make sense. Well, we know what lust is, okay? Like I said, it's engaging in covenant intimacy with another person by using your mind or emotions, right? There are lies we believe about lust. Our sexuality is our core identity. Can't be wrong if it doesn't hurt anyone. The reason we lust is because of others. Marriage is going to fix your lust problem. But it's not just that we believe lies, right? We, we also normalize sin, don't we? And this is important to say because if a lie is believed enough, then it becomes part of the cultural air that we breathe and the water that we drink. And culture is hard to see and even harder to change. So, three, three ways we normalize lust. The first is the most obvious, right? And so I don't need to spend that much time on it, but media. Digital, social media, physical forms of media, our culture is drenched with sex and lust. Billboards, music, TV shows. Hardy's commercials. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to, like, I'm hungry. I don't need to see somebody eating a burger like that, right? <laughs> Super Bowl ads, books, TikTok videos. If you don't believe me, the next time you go to the mall, just make a mental checklist of all the little, you know, advertisements and products that are sexualized. The second way we normalize lust, cohabitation. In other words, people living together as if they're married before they're actually married. And this is the normal thing to do if you're in a serious relationship, right? The idea is that you have to try it out before you commit to it. People say you have to know the other person before you get married. That's the only way, the only way you can know the other person is if you live together. You gotta see if you click. But here's the truth. That's impossible. Because the marriage covenant is so profound and deep that the moment you enter it, you begin to change. And the longer you're in it, the more you begin to be transformed and you become a different person. Yeah. I remember hearing a story about an older gentleman in church, well-respected guy who had been married for a long time. And he said, you know, Throughout my life, I've been married to five different women. Everybody's like, what? He says, and they've all been my wife. <laughs> Isn't it ironic, church, that we live in a culture of self-authenticity and we encourage cohabitation when cohabitation is the very thing that leads away from authenticity? And the reason why is because you're always performing. You're always trying to impress the other person. And on top of that, cohabitation doesn't prepare you for the marriage covenant anyways because you're always thinking to yourself that if things get really bad, you know, I always got a back door or the front door. The third way we normalize lust 
is through fashion. Now, this doesn't contradict what I said earlier about lessening our fault, you know? But the thing is, God does call us to be careful to not lead others into temptation. Now, at this point, you know, it's June, it's really easy to go on a rant about leggings and bikinis, right? Um, but there's a bigger story here that actually cuts across the sexes. The fact is that it's so normalized to lust after other people that we don't even know how to dress anymore. We confuse trying to look good with trying to look sexy. We've confused the primary purpose of clothing, which is to cover and provide protection for our bodies, with the lie that clothing is meant to serve our sexual identity and entice people. We don't dress and pick our clothes with a thought, you know, I've got a job to do, so I need to look a certain way. We say, no, I've got someone I'm trying to be, and I've got an identity to form, so therefore I need to look like this. Not knowing the difference between the two is why people will buy more of a product if the model is really sexy and ripped, regardless of how well the freaking thing works. So far, we've seen what lust is, right? We've seen four lies we believe about lust, three ways we normalize lust, okay? And so, at this point, I've been trying to paint a picture for you, church, of our world, of our churches, in our hearts. And the truth is, Cars, is that we are in big trouble because whether you're, you're part of that 70% of men who look at porn or you have casual sexual relationships or you're the kind of person who has a thought life mired with lustful thoughts and emotions, the, the truth is if we don't deal with our lustful hearts, Jesus says there will be hell to pay. So what are we going to do? Well, Jesus never calls us to do something without giving us the power to do it. Amen? Amen? Jesus is calling you to live a life of holy sexuality and put to death the lust in your hearts. He will help you do that. I guarantee it. So God has offered us two big gospel-sized promises. Two Gospel promises for lustful hearts. That's what I want to show you this morning. Look with me at verses 28 through 30. Actually, just 29 through 30. Just 29 through 30. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Okay? It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, it's easy to read these verses and think, well, here it is. Here's God's promise. If, if I just get rid of what's causing me to, to lust, uh, you know, I'll have, I'll have victory. But verses 29 through 30 aren't the cure for a sinful heart. They're strategies for how a renewed heart fights indwelling sin. Let me say that again. 29 through 30 aren't the cure for a sinful heart. They are strategies for a renewed, born again man or woman and how they ought to fight their indwelling sin. A lot of people wonder whether Jesus was being literal when he said you have to tear out your right eye or cut off your right hand. Well, entertain this thought with me. If he was being literal, imagine like the early church father, or maybe don't imagine, 
origin cash rate and stuff. Imagine the person addicted to porn who, who, who cuts off his hand. What, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with a mutilated body with the same mind and heart that led to sin in the first place. See, the problem is not fundamentally your hand or your eye, but it is your heart and its desires which control your eyes and your hands. Jesus is saying that you need a new heart first and foremost. A heart whose fundamental disposition isn't towards selfishness, unfaithfulness, and idolatry, but towards God and His beauty. And how does anyone get a new heart? Only through the life death, and resurrection of Christ. The first promise offered to those with lustful hearts is the promise of a new heart full of resurrection power. A new life and resurrection power, church. John 4, there's this woman at the well. Some of us are very familiar with the story, but by every standard at this time, this woman was the most despicable person. She was sexually broken and promiscuous. She was a Samaritan, which means that she wasn't of the uh, maybe right kind of ethnic and religious sort of background. And so here she is at this well, and Jesus goes up to her and asks for a drink. She says, you, the religious teacher, the Jewish teacher, you're asking me for a drink. Jesus says, look, if you knew the kind of water I could give you, you'd be asking for that. I've got water that if you drink, you'll never thirst. Jesus tells her that if you believe in me, I can save you in such a way that your deepest longings will be satisfied. And I'll give you a new heart. Lady, you've been looking for satisfaction and thrill through your sexual experiences. But through my gospel, I can satisfy the desires behind your desires. And the good news is that Jesus offers you that today, that same promise. He offers you a joy and a contentment and a satisfaction and a pleasure and a thrill that's more lasting than the best food, sex, or experience that you could ever imagine. And He gives you this for free, through faith. There's a reason why on the cross Jesus said, I thirst. He was quoting scripture. And in that moment, He died for you and I so that our deepest satisfactions would be met. Our thirst would be quenched. It was on the cross and through His resurrection that Jesus offers a new heart that's responsive to the beauty of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to do the will of God, which is your sexual holiness. This is what Paul means in Romans 6 when he says, we've been united with Christ. We've been buried with Him and raised with Him so that we might walk in the newness of life. Our old self was crucified so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But if that weren't good enough, God offers a second promise. He promises union with Him. A kind of union that points towards an ultimate marriage. Isn't it interesting that the Bible begins in Genesis with a marriage and ends in Revelation with another marriage? And here in the middle of the book, there's Jesus, right? Who calls himself the bridegroom and the church is bride. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 5, stating that marriage points towards the way God, through Christ, saves and relates 
to his people. And all that foreshadows the ultimate marriage that awaits us in heaven. How many of you guys were just a little disappointed when you realized that there was not any marriage in heaven? I, you don't actually have to raise your hand. That might be a little awkward. Um, but I was one of those people, right? Like, I remember being a new Christian, like, just scouring the New Testament, wondering if there was, like, an exception clause or, like, some fine print somewhere. You won't find it. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, wasn't very wise. Um, my theology was, you know, still being worked out. But I remember saying to myself, God... <laughs> Like, why give us these strong desires for intimacy and sex and then create this apparently perfect place called heaven and not have marriage and sex there? Like, what? So weird. Like I said, you know, I needed some work. Well, later on, sometime, a few months after that, I was listening to a podcast by a theologian on this topic, and he said something that changed my life. He said, you know, a lot of times people think of these, you know, comparisons between Christ and the church. Um, is something like this. You know, God sitting around in heaven, the Holy Trinity, speaking to Jesus, kind of, you know, planning things and saying, hmm, well, you know, I really do love these sinners a lot. And the thing is, though, they're really bad at communicating with me. So I, I'm looking for an analogy that's going to help them grasp my love for them. You know, you know what they, re they really like weddings. You know what they really like TLC. They're like drama shows. You know, I got it. I'll use marriage as an example. Well, it's quite the opposite, actually. You see, in eternity past, our God had so much love set apart for you and I that he decided to create a temporary institution and covenant that everyone in all cultures could enjoy as an image of the real and eternal marriage. So what's this got to do with lust, right? Like, everything? Everything? Because when Jesus saves you and gives you a new heart, he unites himself to you and you with him. And the union is so deep and lasting that even the best earthly marriages only hint at the kind of union and intimacy you'll have with God. This means that, number one, you don't need marriage in heaven. <laughs> you don't need it. But even more importantly, this means that if you're in a terrible marriage or you're single, you can actually still experience what marriage is about without having to be married to anyone. And when Jesus comes back and we're finally saved, our deepest desires will be met with something better than sex. This is how Jesus, who was never, never sexually active, was the most fully self-controlled and content person who ever walked earth. You see, when you dive into the depths of Christ's love for you, his union with you, his death for you, it transforms the command of this passage from something that you shouldn't do into something you need not do. So we've defined lust. We've seen the lies about it. We've seen how we've normalized it. I've just given you two promises that change lustful hearts. And lastly, church, I want to leave you with one essential way or strategy to fight lust. And yes, actually win. Brothers and sisters, yes, you can actually win your battle against lust. You can actually have victory. And here's how. You have to radically cut off anything in your life 
behavior, routines, habits, all of it, any of it, whatever leads to lust. In Romans, Paul calls this putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And in Galatians, he calls this sowing to the spirit instead of the flesh. And you can only do this once your hearts have been transformed by the gospel, because otherwise, you're just changing outward behavior. Jesus says you have to tear out your right eye or cut off your right arm. And this is radical, bloody stuff, right? You've got to get rid of or get away from whatever's tempting you to sin. And if you need to get rid of your smartphone, resolve to do it today. If you need to cancel your Hulu membership, do it today. If you need to stop that relationship with that one guy, then do it today. If you need to stop kissing your boyfriend, do it. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Jesus said that if you want to have victory over lust and have a holy sexuality, you can by his grace, then you must do whatever it takes. You see, when it comes to sin, you know, we're like those people at the Grand Canyon who like to get really, really, really close to the edge and then, you know, take a selfie, right? That's what we do. Paul says flee from sexual immorality, but we like to play jump rope with it and play patty cake. Jesus says we have to brutally destroy the things that prompt us to lust, but we like to coddle them and hold memorial services, as if we're really missing out. And church, when you begin to fight with lust and sin like this, it will be difficult. I promise you that. Three years ago, I was playing basketball, and as you might expect, I somehow managed to get hurt. Um, probably thinking, Darren, why do you always get hurt playing basketball? It's like, well, if I didn't, then I wouldn't have sermon illustrations. But I got poked in the eye so hard that I actually went blind. I'm serious. I actually went blind in my right eye. And let me just tell you, I was, like, terrified the entire day. I could not think about anything except getting to the doctor as soon as I could. It, it changed my whole day. Brothers and sisters, losing an eye or cutting off a hand is not supposed to be comfortable. If it hurts, if it's uncomfortable, then you're probably fighting just like the way God has called you to. Church, when you begin your fight with lust and sin like this, you may very well get into more trouble. Think about Joseph when he was confronted with sexual temptation from Potiphar's wife, right? He did the right thing. He, he literally ran away. <laughs> like, he literally ran away. And you know what happened to him? He got thrown in jail. Right? We often think, God, if I fight temptation, then you're going to rain down blessings in my life, man. Like, no, you might actually get into more trouble. Your life might become harder. You'll, you'll have coworkers who think you're a killjoy or self-righteous. You'll have roommates who think you're weird for not watching that movie with them. You may not be able to go on that trip or to that party because you're trying to fight sin. And family, that is 100% okay. That's okay. Hear Kevin DeYoung one more time on this. I promise I'm not, you know, you know, just quoting him the whole time. But this is really good what he wrote. He says this, we are not good fighters. We make excuses. We don't get radical. We pray a few prayers. We feel bad all the time. We tell a friend, ask how we're doing once in a while. That's it. We need more decisive action than that. Avoid the movies. Get rid of your internet connection. Don't kiss before marriage if you have to. 
Throw out your TV, tear out your eye, whatever it takes to battle lust. There are too many whole-bodied people going to hell and not enough spiritual amputees going to heaven. Brothers and sisters, I know, personally know people who have been addicted to porn for years and who have not looked at porn for years after confronting God's grace. I know people who have had thoughts dominated by lust and who have lived to get the attention of others, but who now live out of God's love. I know people who have lived lives of sexual brokenness and homosexuality who have now devoted themselves to God and who have had victory over their sin. It's not impossible. In fact, it's normal. That's the normal thing. When you are confronted with God's grace and it's changed your heart. After all, it's God's grace that empowers us to live a holy sexuality and conquer lust. So church, as I close, I want to make it clear that sexual desire, like fire, has the potential to be incredibly good, provided it's in the right context. Right? If so, it's good, it's beautiful, it's life-giving, it's able to warm a house, right? It's able to provide a meal. Sex is a beautiful and God-honoring thing in its right place. But fire, when it's out of control, can burn down a house, a forest, an entire city. Church, do you know how to fight and battle and conquer the lust in your heart? Or will you be conquered by it? I hope so, because your eternity hangs in the balance. Church, would you pray with me? God, we approach you as simple, broken people. Um, yet your holiness, because of Christ, doesn't necessarily have to be the problem. Your holiness can be given to us. Lord, forgive us for such low expectations. If you are who you say you are, if you created us with all of our desires, is it not too much to think that your your glory will satisfy those desires? Is it not too much for us to think that there is a such thing that is greater in every sense than the earthly, fading, temporary desires that we have now? God, thank you that your grace has appeared and has brought salvation for all kinds of people. Thank you that your grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and holy lives in this present age. May we wait for our blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us, to redeem us and purify us. Pray and ask us in your name.